We doing well, everybody? Yes. Doing well? Yeah, sweet. Well, as Greg mentioned, we are in uh, the New Testament book, Revelation, the last book in the New Testament, so I'm excited to dig into it. I'm not even going to go over any other announcements. He nailed them well, of course, again. And so uh, I will touch on a few things, though. So you, you see the title, oh, that's for today's study, and we're going to see that as we dig into the word very specifically identified, that Jesus knows you. He knows the church. He knows the state of the world. He knows the hot topics when they're cold before they come hot. Everything. He knows everything. It's really, a re- hopefully, reassuring to have that fresh reminder that he knows everything about us. But also, hopefully, it is also very humbling to where we are, as Christians, receptive to what he would do in our lives and, and even in, um, in and through us in various places. So the book of Revelation, it's uh, ironically the one book in the Bible that the very content in the first chapter, we're told, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. So it's the one that says there's a blessing within this one. And the irony to it is, it's the one many people avoid. Some won't even teach it, even as a, as a gathering in churches. And because it's, quote, too controversial. And I'm like, well, that's awkward all of a sudden, right? I mean, if it's controversial, if that's any basis for what we won't teach, we're going to be deleting a lot real fast, you know? So it's like, got to be careful. It's like, and I get it. I'm not trying to, anyway, point fingers at anybody. I'm just thinking, hey, we're going through it because... It's in the scripture. It's very readable. You're going to see, I believe personally, this book is one of the best outlined and easiest to track with for the Western civilization way of thinking from chronology and such. But you've got to catch the keys. You've got to be aware of, of how it's presented to us. And so I want to start with just a couple of references for what we touched on last week as well as Wednesday, and I'll re- reference these keys once again. It's chapter 1, verse 19. Which reads, write the things which you have seen, and the things which you have, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So we have the Apostle John. He's in uh, exile on the island of Patmos for his faith, for his belief. And, and an angel appears to him, and then Jesus speaks to him, and he's given him this instruction write the things which you have seen. So that would have been from chapter 1. Up to verse 18. Write these things down. So he's, 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 you know, okay, I got that. And then it says, after that, the things which are, which be present. Which, you, you, if you've read it, you know he's going to get into chapter 2, chapter 3. Specific instruction to the complete church. It refers to as the seven churches. Seven churches that are geographically located. And we're going to see some application beyond just that first century. So right to these seven churches, the things which are the church time. And then it says, and he also to write the things which will take place after this. He's writing, and then now he's brought into the church reference into that time. And so what's the after this? Well, you can see in chapter 4, verse 1, after these things, John speaking, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So this is a really important key, because he's writing what he has seen, the things which are, and the things will take place after this. And so what we see somewhere between the end of chapter 3, verse 22, and chapter 4, verse 1, the church is raptured. The time of the church, church is now brought up, the, the, the church, God's words to describe the relationship, the, the true church, the gathering of his, the ecclesia, is his bride. And so we know from chapter 4 on, his wrath is going to be poured out. That's what's going to happen in the coming chapters. But we also know, according to 1 Thessalonians, that we are not appointed to wrath, And so what's happening is John's writing the things that have taken place, the church thing, and then after these things, 
He's going to write what happens after the church is raptured. Why is that relevant? Well, if you, if you, if you, get, if you, don't, if, if you get that out of order, it's going to get really confusing. Because you're going to read other passages and you're going to try to think, well, how, how do we endure when this happens to us? But if we're not there, then it's a little different for us. We're trying to read something that speaks of Israel, but we're thinking it means the church. You see, it gets really confusing. This is a really important part. That's why I'm going to reference it frequently to understand this is the process. This is the chronology, which then brings us up to the churches. We looked at you know, through chapter 1 last week, and we're beginning this reference to the, to the churches, four geographic churches. And I want to present to you four views that are worth considering, pondering, and we under, as we understand why he's saying this. You know, he's talking to the churches, plural. It's been preserved for over 2,000 years for us to read it. So we can easily agree that he wasn't talking to just one church in one location in one point of history. It was pretty obvious that there's the contemporary churches gathering at the locations mentioned in this, within this vision. Those were, those were actual churches taking place, or meeting in Asia Minor. We know one of them, the one we'll read about today, because we can read a letter to that church called the Letter to the Ephesians. Well, we have that contemporary churches that were taking place. They would have received these commendations, these encouragement, these letters to them. We also have what's called the historical view of the churches from the first generation to the, the present, to our generation. And it's broken down into various points in human history with some interesting attributes and interesting things that happened, you know, just generally speaking in the world. And so it's, you know, broken down into every you know, two, three, four hundred years apart. And, and I, I, like, I like that for consideration. I just don't think we're going to see the application for our lives in a practical way. It's good to see it that way. The third and fourth one, I think, are the important ones for us uh, today as we read it. The, the view that these churches listed here, these seven churches in, listed in Revelation 2 and 3, their instructions and, and to be read for every church in every age of church history. Does that make sense? So it, it makes sense. You're reading it, and it's like, well, that's to be applied by us, especially if we hold that the seven, when it speaks of seven churches, speaks of the complete church, because seven often is speak, spoken, used, the number used to speak of completeness. So we know, okay, God wants us to apply this, to live this, every age of history. And you'll see every, I believe every church has the elements and attributes and, and, and you know, critiques at various seasons in that church's history, which is pretty fascinating. But the one I've also held on to tightly myself, the view that these, what's listed in these churches is also to be an individual's view relating to your own journey with Jesus. So there'll be seasons you're living like Ephesus, and some of us have been spent too much time in Laodicea. And so you see, take those qualities and attributes and realize, okay, so here's some application within all this. And I want the emphasis today to be upon the church in this age as well as our own individual walks as we walk in unity. So we're going to pray. God, we believe your word to be true, every bit of it. It's, a, it's to, to benefit us. It's to direct us and correct us. We believe that you, Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us into all truth. You bring to our remembrance the things that Jesus has said. You write these things upon the tablet of our hearts. You teach us what your love looks like. You empower us with your love to live in love. To allow that love that's embedded and planted and present because you're present within us, allow that love to be expressed in a manner that would glorify you. And so I would ask, Lord, you would teach us your word today. You would show us how to walk according to your truth, to live in a way that honors you, and to rejoice at your return. And so, Lord, thank you that you have given us your word and that you teach it to us. In your beautiful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, well, let's begin there in Revelation chapter 2. I'd like to read that portion, and then I'm going to come back, and we'll look at a couple parts. We'll look at what Jesus, how he commended the church there in Ephesus. We'll look at what uh, we're to do and how, how to be aware of how to live out all this that he shows us and be corrected by him in a way that it actually builds us up. So beginning in verse 1 of Revelation 2, 
to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Verse 4, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All right. Plenty there to, to process and to work through. Now, from chapter 1, beginning, considering chapter 2, verse 1, in chapter 1, we learned that the stars mentioned um, are the angels or pastors in the church. We learned that the golden lampstands are the churches. We learned, and we see it reminded again, that Jesus is in the midst of the churches. He holds the church in his right hand. His right hand represents power, authority, judgment. So with that, let's also be aware that he is to lead us individually with this same reality that he's in the midst of the church. He's in the, he's, the Bible tells us that he, God dwells within us, takes up residence when we're born again, born of the Spirit. And so he, he's in the midst, and hopefully that encourages you. Because even though you will face trials and struggles and difficulties, he doesn't depart from you. You know, the Old Testament was a little unique in the relational reality that the Spirit of God would come upon a prophet or a person and empower them for a particular you know, situation and then would depart. So their relationship was different. But ours in, this, in the New Testament, since the victory of the cross and the resurrection, he, he doesn't leave us nor forsake us. He doesn't depart. He always stays with, he's there with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So... When we realize that he's in our midst, I, I think it changes the pressures we put upon ourselves. It changes how we expect ourselves to be because we start realizing, I, he's with me. He's in the midst. And I, you know, I, I've chewed a lot on that those last few weeks because it really does change how you think when you realize he's there with you. Just like when you're with someone else and, and you're apart from them, you may be thinking about something, but when you're there with them, your conversation changes, your engagement, if the relationship is solid and loving, you're, you're just, there's, a, there's a life to it. He's in the midst of us. Now, also, the right hand, as I referenced, he has authority. He has power in our lives. He has influence. When we call him our Lord, we, that's a designation of his position, of his authority over our lives. Because we've tried on our own to do our own thing, and then we surrendered to him. We agreed that we couldn't remove our sin. We couldn't remove our guilt. We couldn't remove our shame. And whether you said it that way or not, it doesn't matter. You realize, I, I need his forgiveness. And so we literally, we, we put our faith. We be, to believe in him is to put your trust in him for salvation. And so we, we literally handed the authority of our lives over to Jesus Christ. That's why we call him our Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he gets to direct our steps, and he gets to build us up, and he gets to bring instruction into us. So let's look at what Jesus says to the church. He commends this church here in, in, in chapters 2 and 3, but when we, what we're going to look at today is, you know, because he's in our midst, he has the authority. What does he say to his people? Verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience. You cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. He's saying to you and me, as you see there in verse 2, I know you. I know you. I know your works. And he's saying this, I know your works. Great job. Good job. Great job. And it's not one of those things like your boss. You know, when your boss calls you into the office, 
you know, overall, sir, you've been doing really good. You know, I like that you did this and I like you did that, but you're fired. You know, some people kind of, there's that build up because they want to get to this like, oh yeah, but we got to address this issue. This is not that. This is him saying, listen, I know what's going down in your life. I, I know your works. And the works there is not an attempt to extend an effort in order to gain right sight before God. Works is speaking up. I know what you take on to do. I know what you have to do in your family. I know what's going down in your workplace. I'm aware of what's happening with relational friction. And I'm aware that you take on to serve in this way. You take on to love me in this fashion. I'm aware of what you do. Isn't that comforting that God knows? Sometimes the people around you have no clue. That's okay. To know, I know what you do. I know your, your works. I know your, your labor. It speaks of your toil, your pain, your grief, your weariness. There is a weariness. It wears on you to serve God, to extend his love to a family member, to extend his love to a coworker, to serve in a capacity that you can bring truth in children's ministry or, or you can serve some. And so, you know what I'm saying? It, 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 it's tiring. There's aspects to it that is just, this is just difficult. He goes, I know that. I know what you're going through. And he goes on to say patience, which is endurance. It's steadfastness. You ever signed up for something and then wanted to not do it, but you chose to go ahead and do it because you know the reason you signed up to do it was because you knew it was the thing to do. And so you knew that, but yeah, oh man, I'm going to have to do this. There's a steadfastness. There's this this patience in, in what we're doing. Now, what's interesting here, as I've mentioned, he's commending the church there in Ephesus. And we know it's not meant to be just limited to that gathering in that point in time. He commends you. Can you receive commendation in humility? I hope you can. It's really important to receive from the Lord what he says to you without going all arrogant on him. Without going, when he said, oh, you know, Dan, I want to, I want to commend you for doing that. And I'm like, Thanks. You know, I thought I was doing a pretty good job. Now that you mention it, I'm actually outstanding. You know, they're, they're, we, we orient to ego so fast that a compliment or something God would say, he's not saying that to puff you up. He's saying it to build you up. Because what you have went through was preparation for what you're going to go through. It's not so we can think highly of ourselves. But rather, we can thank you, God. I just sometimes feel like nobody notices. They don't go, I know. But, you know, I'm, I'm doing something in your life. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So he's sharing this love, he's showing us. Now what he says here and compliments and commends here in, Ephes- or in uh, the church there in Ephesus and going on in verse 3, or actually still in verse 2, I've, you've tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. See, the early church had an element that the, every church needs. It's actually truth protectors. That's our calling. We're to, we're to understand and discern what truth is and what's not truth. He says, you know, there's a lot of challenges right now. They're, they were the, the churches to be the original fact checkers, not the opinion checkers that we have right now, not those that, you know, say, well, I actually I believe this or I believe that or I feel this is what it means. A fact checker. I can reference that out of 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And there's a critical need for that in our culture. We understand that. This compliment and commendation he's given to, to those who will dig into the word and, and stand for the truth, it, we're to deal honorably with false teachers. We're not to honor them, per se, but you see, deal honorably with them. Most of your false teachers don't have a big platform. Some of them do. Some of them have too big of a platform you know, by way of media and other things. But the things that were creeping into the church in this first century are still sneaking in today. And understand this. Most false teachers feed off of relationships. This allows them a friendly audience because of friendships. We're more apt to listen to false teaching from somebody we know than somebody we don't know. Is that true? 
The one we don't know, they've got to, in some fashion, with some credentials, establish their voice by way of authority to us so that we'll give them some credibility or at least receive what they have to say. But if it's a friend or somebody who formerly we knew or walked with or whatever, we kind of give them a pass. Many in the church today will pray for a liar but are very reluctant to address the lies. You know why? Because they're awkward. Oh, I used to go to church with them. I used to hang with them. And now they're saying these things. And I don't know, maybe it happened. Maybe it's true. Maybe that's it. It's often because of the relationship in the past that prevents us from standing from the truth. And it's a very, I'm not saying this is an easy thing to do. I think that's why they're commended for it. But those who presented themselves as, when it says apostles, they weren't claiming to be like, Judas replacement or something like that. They were, it's literally one who was sent, has some voice. And they're like, you don't have a voice. You're not speaking the truth. You're, 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 what are you talking about here? Over the years, I'm looking back, and you know, just because I was working through this and just thinking how, I mean, we've been here 21 years, and just, you know, those of you who have been here, you've weathered some of these storms where people who used to attend or used to be a part of this gathering or whatever, and for whatever reason, they're now some voice of authority out there to speak against what's taking place. And it, it, it's not new. Some have asked me, so what are you going to do about this? I'm like, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't put, I don't chase the fire of a lie when it's fading. I don't pour more fuel on it. You know what I mean? I don't see any model, example, exhortation from Jesus in the, in the New Testament and the, the teaching of the New Testament that we're to chase after dishonesty or lies. We're to identify it when we have to, but most of the time it's just let it dissipate. Now, if it's a, a doctrinal issue, if it's something about the deity of Jesus Christ, if it's an essential teaching, then you have to hit it head on, okay? You ha- even if it's a, a neighbor or a friend. You know, I, I grew up, you know, just not really going to church. We had a, an affiliation, a, a religion of reference, if you would, and so, as we had recognized our, our background and our parents said, hey, I want you to go here and be a part of this false, false church. It wasn't really a church. It was, they claimed to have the Latter-day Revelation, but they don't. And so, it, as we were a part of that, one of the guys there that I knew at work said, you know, what we do is we build relationships through our softball team and our recreation And we build this relationship because we know if we can establish the relationship, intermingle the families, then what we teach won't be as distracting. It's relational use to accomplish. You see what I'm saying? Like, oh, wait. So I had to say, well, isn't that kind of rude? I mean, aren't you kind of lying to them right up front? I don't want you to know what we really believe because you'll bolt. But what I'll do is I'll build a relationship and then maybe you'll listen. I'm like, could you, and we had, we worked together, so we had a very vibrant (laughs) interaction for several years. I I really cut, I really liked the guy because he was so truthful. Um, But nonetheless, what I'm saying is, realize, deal honorably with these things. You know, in verse 3, Jesus goes back, if you would, and reiterates, I know you sweat and toil and labor for my namesake, namesake. Laboring not because of coercion, or some sense of self-drive, but laboring for his namesake. Very important. They, and they, I guess I'd describe it this way. They serve wholeheartedly. I've seen many people over the years, many people even now, that serve wholeheartedly. I look back at my own life, and they were, there has been times where I've been all in in the area that I'm committed to. But truthfully, not every season of my life has been that way. There's many times I've served conveniently rather than sacrificially. It, it cleared my conscience a little bit to sign up and show up a little bit, and I felt good about it, but I was just, it was not really this all-in attitude. And we see, and maybe you can be honest enough looking through your own life, where you, you sometimes shoot, serve occasionally rather than consistently. And this is not, I'm not using this as a manipulation or pressure to get more people to sign up and help in various areas. It's not a bad idea, but it's just not, you know, biblical. It shouldn't be done. 
What we got to be is honest before the Lord. And when we realize, man, there's just times I'm not like this. And then when he commends you, receive it. Allow him to encourage you. Allow him to build you up. I know this is really tough for many people to maintain humility when they're built up by the Lord because we tend to shift and take credit for what he's already identified. One way to keep the distraction of taking credit is to recognize verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. <laughs> like this, okay, but you know, all that commendation, he's saying, listen, man, and he, it is not a setup to bring in the bad news. He's just saying, okay, hey, listen, you're doing well in this. I recognize that. You're, I see you grow, and I know who you are. But don't do those things for the wrong reasons. Be compelled by love, according to what the Bible tells us, to be motivated by the relationship with God. Don't, don't be serving, doing, working, disciplining so that you can have a relationship with God. But because you have that relationship through Jesus Christ, you just want to express that love to him through the things you choose to do and the disciplines and the, and the values. Now, notice he says, you've left your first love. There's a big difference between leaving something and losing something, agreed? I can, I can lose my car keys by misplacing them. I don't leave my car keys very often, right, if you're driving somewhere. So you realize when he says left here, there's a, some important things involved. Left, by just the definition of that word in the Greek, it speaks of sent away. Uh, you've departed this, from this love. Um, to disregard it. To leave. It's actually a word that's used in this fashion to begin the process of divorce. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? What's an important part in the process of divorce? Not that you should be studying it, but nonetheless, decrease love. Correct? Uh, there's one thing I, I say frequently to those that I meet in, in marital relationships and encouragement and uh, a big factor. You were friends before you were spouses. Go back to being friends. Because it's, it's, it's an example of what he's talking about, and we know it sadly. Many marriages come apart because other things become more important. Where there's this desire to talk on the phone all the time and you know, have conversation and share your life in those early weeks and months and maybe year, that comes repla- gets replaced by, did you buy cat food? Did you get this? It becomes a friendly, joyful engagement with a desire to know each other, just you know, really truly understand them, to a business arrangement with a, with a shared apartment, so to speak. It's because of, I believe, it's love. We inadvertently think these actions are going to take care of it, and we, we depart. And, and, and what's interesting here, when it speaks of the process and going through this, it indicates a knowledge and a willingness. It, it, the way we would maybe it correlated or comprehend it, it's kind of like this, where you would say in a situation, deep down, I knew what I was doing. Deep down, I, I knew I was deviating. I knew I was going off course, but I did it anyway. I didn't think the consequences would be that high. I didn't think the result would be this. You see, so that's what's happening. So you, you, you've, you've left your first love. What is this love that Jesus is speaking of? See, we've got to understand there's a different type of love that we have. As a Christian, you love because he first loved you. See, we have a different love within us. When he resides in this, God in the person of the Holy Spirit takes up his residence, his love is in you. And it's a different love. See, natural love that just comes with, you know, your existence as a live human being, you know, is, is self-minded. It's self-focused. It's self-serving. His love, the love that resides, this new love it, that resides within us, it, it's a grand love. It's the greatest of love. It's even referred to as an unconditional love, which is fascinating. We know a few things that the Bible says about love. I can just assign this as, as homework. 1 Corinthians 13, 
1 Corinthians 13 talks about love being patient and kind. The love, it's a, it's a love that literally is, uh, you know, self-denying to see a greater understanding. It actually says in 1 Corinthians 13 that if, if you're doing all amazing things, and if you're doing all these things around the house, or you're doing these amazing things in the church, but have not love, you're obnoxious. Literally, it's just like a clanging cymbal. Be like somebody just going over there, randomly smacking that thing. You're like, would you just quit it? You're obnoxious. It says right up, 1 Corinthians 13. Anybody read it? Okay, four of you, good. Okay, just kidding. I don't expect a full accurate count. Read that and think of that. That's a different type of love. It's not a love that I produce. It's a love I've received. It's a love that then I'm to learn how to express. I want to touch on, for just a little bit of our time, four manners or types of love that we must consider. When Jesus said, I have this against you, this is pretty serious. Don't, don't think it applies to someone else. It's meant to be applied to you, to me. I have this against you. You've left your first love. Well, what is the first love? What is this love he's, he's mentioning? And I want to look at four different aspects of it that I think we certainly want to consider and ponder and, and let the Holy Spirit bring illumination to our lives. The first one is love for the brethren. Love for the brethren. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus said, speaking to his apostles just hours, so to speak, before the cross, he says to them, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. He he brings this renewed emphasis on what the love of God looks like. It wasn't a new commandment in the sense that it had never been said before. We're going to see here even later, there's another one that he specifically identifies. that he's, We've been told to love. God said to love. But this renewed emphasis is, is you're to love one another. It's a distinct mark among his followers that the world should identify. If you were asked a historian who was accurate and true, hey, what would you say for the last 2,000 years has been the identifiable mark an immeasurable icon, stamp on the church. What would it be? Not one would say, overall, looking at denominations and non-denominations and movements and measures and all this stuff within the body of Christ, not one would say, they're very loving to one another. Right? History is horrible in our, as regards to the record of the church. Division, murder, split, all this stuff. It should not be. And we can't pretend like, well, that's just somebody complaining about the crusades. No, it's an accurate record and it shouldn't be that way. The, the, the world should know we have love one for another. Can we love someone who meets down the street or in another city who has a different doctrine, a different opinion? I'm not talking about the difference on essential doctrine. I'm talking about this not even secondary. Is there such thing as a thirdary? You know, the number three stuff, not the number one, not the number two, even down further. Can, you, can we disagree on that? Yes. Can we have lunch together afterwards? Yes. Can we not kill someone with a fork? Yes. There's, you see what I'm saying? It should be the distinctive, but it's not. So early on, we see leaving this first love, the love for the brethren. You know, this is how the world's going to know you're my disciples. Consider also, out of 2 Timothy 4.8, love for Jesus' return. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, it reads this way. Now Paul, at the end of his life, is realizing what God has done in his life. He's not saying, hey, I've arrived, I've done it. He knows what God has done, and he says in verse 8, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, love there is not meant to be the past tense of his first coming, that is inclusive, but there's this desire, this longing for his return. Their love, I mean, the early church functioned under what's been summarized accurately to be the doctrine of eminent return. 
which means he could return at any moment. From the very moment of his ascension, they were eager to see his return. And there was a love for that. What's interesting in this text, it it indicates that the reward laid up for the Christian is related to that person's love and longing for Jesus, for his return. See, if we're very practical, we'll allow that comforting and clear scope and light of the Holy Spirit to shine on our heart, our motives, and our intents. When things in this world, in this life, become more important to me, to us, to you, they're more important than storing up treasures in heaven, that's a warning from God. That's a caution that certain things are creeping in. You're thinking about those more than him, and you're not as eager for his return. You know, failing to recognize we're going home someday can just slip away. We can be drawn in by other things. You know, Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says, We're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remind yourself that every, mo- every morning. I'm looking forward to Jesus' return. I'm still going to work. I'm still mowing the lawn. I might feed the cat. I'm going to do these things. They're my responsibilities. But I'm looking forward to his glorious appearing and his beautiful return. Because when you're aware and you're looking for that, you have a better balance on these things that are responsibilities. And, and yeah, you're preparing for different seasons of life. And yes, you're, you're trying to provide for your family out of what he's provided to you. But it's all with his awareness. I, 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 I love and long for his return. It, it, it compels us. It actually helps us to live a simpler life in so many ways. Number three, we'll consider this love that we can occasionally and easily leave is a love for non-believers. If you turn to, to Jude with me, Jude is the uh, last book before Revelation. In Jude, it's only one chapter, so you literally go by verse, verse 21 to 23. I'll, actually, I'm going to start with verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. This love for those who don't net don't yet know God. Some are so close to hell that your involvement as God empowers you and directs you, you're the agent that snatches them out of the grip of hell and places them on his glory, in his glorious light, in this rock of salvation. And he says, man, just such a, a, a deep concern. I want to say something that I want you to process. Don't email me before Wednesday so you have time to think about it. New believers often have a greater love for those who are not yet believers. What? Yes. Do you remember when you first got saved? You were so close because you were hanging around a bunch of sinners. All of you. (laughs) Most of you. People that don't know the Lord. And God rescued you out of that. Not so you could stand on this side and go, you suckers. What he does is he rescues you, and you're now wanting to know him, and you're eager. And they say to you, hey, what would you do? I, had, I, had, I worked at the same place for 20 years, right out 20 years. First 10 before I become a Christian, and then the last 10, ah, duh, after I got saved. So after getting saved and excited and not even knowing why I'm excited and learning the, the, the Bible, and there's just something I can't even put into doctrinal reality. It's just my reality. And as I'm experiencing this, I go into work. Hey, Davis, what did you do this weekend? Oh, man. Well, I went to church. Man, I've never heard of these songs before. It was awesome. They're like, you freak. You one of them Bible thumpers now? You're going to go all religious, honest? Literally, the words were said. I'm like, excuse me. I understood where they're coming from. Because I spent so many years on, over there living that way. But the first thing that happens this passion and this desire and this love and this eagerness to know God and a zeal to read the word and have this opposition. You know, after a couple years, hey, Davis, what did you do this weekend? Ah, we went up to Bogus for a couple hours on Saturday. Just kind of took a chill, easy weekend. What What didn't I say that I used to say previously? Oh, man, I went to church because I was tired of the criticism. I was tired of the cut. 
I just didn't even want to bring it up. But two years previously, I was pretty excited about it. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm not saying, you know, our early youthful zeal is kind of obnoxious. Seriously, sometimes. We have zero sensitivity and sometimes too much pride and arrogance that hasn't been purified out of us yet. So we kind of do the Bible thumping thing sometimes, many times. But realize that zeal and that love for the lost because you, you understand what you've received and you want those who are in your circle of life, in your world, you want them to know. This love of Christ residing and thriving within us causes us to be concerned for those who have not yet responded in faith to the glorious gospel of Jesus. As we learn doctrine and build new church folk relationships, it's easy to leave or to think less of or to do less for or to be as concerned as those who we used to live, for, the, live with, the love for those who have not yet been saved. Does that make sense? It's so easy, and we have it. And I'm not in any way implying that there's, there's no value to, to interaction. God has designed us to have godly koinonia, it's called in the Greek, fellowship. Words of encouragement, exhortation, hope. For a young believer to have an environment that they can be built up. For an older believer to have an environment where they can pour out the wisdom and experience and truth God's poured into them. It should not be parked. It should be poured out. It should be intermingled through fellowship. But not at the expense of not reaching the world, but for the very purpose to reach those who have not yet come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So when we kind of leave that, we find ourselves kind of cloistering and coming into our own little cliques and groups. The last thing and the most important thing that drives the three previous is love for the Lord himself. Love for the Lord himself. We draw that out of Matthew chapter 22 Beginning in verse 34, so Jesus has the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious people are really trying to put him in a corner because they already have their system, they already have their friends, they already have their authority. They don't need anybody interrupting or challenging it. And so they're constantly trying to find an angle. And in this situation, the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. So Jesus is conveying what's been recorded in the Old Testament. And even now when we understand it. A love for God himself. Don't let our efforts, let's not let our actions be detached. In other words, let them be attached, compelled by a love for God. So there we do reach out to people. Then we do convey, we do exercise the gifts that God has placed within us because it's a way to express, I I love God. I can't do anything in showing love to gain his favor. For his unconditional love was proven on the cross for whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So here we have this. And, and so going back to um, Revelation chapter 2, this, these things we looked at, these are these, this, this love that we can leave so easily. You can be impressive in a church, doing a lot of things and be the go-to person and help in so many fashions. You can be very disciplined in, in the way you engage, and you can be very doctrinally accurate in the way you communicate truth. And he says, but I can I hold this against you if you don't understand what love looks like, if you're not allowing yourself to be compelled and directed by him, then, you know, I I hold it against you. Carrying us over to verse five of Revelation two. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Go back to that moment. And for some of us, we can go back to that conversion, just born again experience and remember, man, I remember the zeal, the passion, the love for the word, the hunger, the discipline, staying up night and getting up early to read these things and seek out teaching and, you know, all the, because I want to grow. You know, man, remember, return to that. 
repent. It literally means to turn away. I regret what I was doing. I turn from that with the, with the desire to go back to the Lord. They're, they're, you know, see what I'm saying? I'm saying? I don't brag about some of the seasons I've had. I, I regret those. I want to go back. I want to remember these things where, you know, where I had the relationship I had. I want to make that sure it's, it's watered, it's nurtured, it grows. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There's many churches that are, that are functioning as spiritual fraternities. They're just going through the motions. God said, you're not, you're not teaching my word. You're not loving me. You're not honoring me. You're just a social setting with a lot of morals and ethics and compliments, but I'm not the center of your gathering point. I'm not what you're seeking, and I'm, I'm going rem- to remove myself. And you can look around. I mean, you hit rewind about 100 years. Europe was flourishing. Go there now. You got a lot of cold, sterile buildings. Cold, sterile buildings. We met in India at the Hard Rock Cafe, and it was an old St. Andrew's church. Now, imagine my mind as I'm sitting in the Hard Rock Cafe in Bangalore, India, which was an old, I think it was St. Andrew's, I don't know, this old church, and I'm looking at what I used to listen to, Bon Scott, Highway to Hell, ACDC, guitar there, in the church, on a mission trip. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, wow. How could it go from something that God so mightily used to, to just a bar? I just, it's because when the love left, when they wouldn't go back, the Lord said, you know, I, I'm going to let you... Live without love because that's what you're wanting until you know, they wake up. Verse 6, I've got to punch this out. But this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. In my mind, I've studied this a few times. I'm not definitive yet. I haven't really, really grasped what the Nicolaitans were. Um, you break the word apart, Nikao, Laos, it speaks of uh, to conquer the people, Nico. And then laos is laity, so authority over the laity, which we did see happen. It happened quickly. It pressed in to where there was this authority. You couldn't go to God because you weren't educated and you didn't know what you're reading in the first place. So you had to go to this group, this organization, this system, and then they would tell you they, they conquered the average guy. Well, Jesus is basically saying, I have fulfilled the law. I have fulfilled every crossed every 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 jot and tittle has been fulfilled and there was an element of the law you needing a man to be a mediator the priest to go before but according to hebrews he is our high priest so he's erased this system that requires you to have somebody else go before you to have a relationship with god and so if the nicolaitans which he'll mention again later if that was the element it makes sense why he said i hate that can jesus say hate I thought he was love. But he does hate the actions of the Nicolaitans. Another thing to consider, according to early church historians, the Nicolaitans were the ones that followed Nicholas. Nicholas, one of the early leaders within the church. But they led lives of unrestrained indulgence. They were Gnostic. In other words, they thought they knew everything, but they brought this sensual reality into the church where everything was good. Everything was good. You could do whatever you want. It didn't matter because it was just the body. And people followed that. You know that's alive and well today. Sensual indulgence at the expense of obedience to doctrine and teaching. And so he says he hates that. Verse 7. He who has ears, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. We all have ears. Pretty much, most everybody has two. Let him hear. If you have an ear, but let you hear. And you notice it says to the churches. It doesn't say to the church in Ephesus. To you, to me. Have an ear to hear what he says. What is he prompting you to? What's he correcting you on? What's he comforting you in? How's he commending you? Receive what the Lord's speaking to you. Realize that the living God actually impresses upon your heart and brings to your realization truths that are important to you. It's always consistent, always in line with his word. It's not, you know, off in the deal zone. 
But it's from his word. He's making things known to you because he, he wants you to hear what he says to you. I don't know how I can emphasize the value and, and the reality, the relational truth. The God who spoke the world into existence sees you as the apple of his eye and engages with you. He dialogues with you. You know, that should catch our attention. I mean, even if somebody in our culture that we looked up to showed up, we'd clean the table. We'd, you know, clean the house. We'd prepare for them. We'd be excited. Why not? I'm not laying this on you too heavy. But I mean, I, I ponder that all the time. You speak to me. You, you speak to us. You build us up. Man, I want to stay the course to him who overcomes and literally just stay the course. To you, I'll give to eat from the tree of life. Where was the tree of life last time we maybe read of it? Garden of Eden in Genesis. We read about it. There was another tree there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that. What, you mean this one? They eat of it. And in his mercy, he removes and transplants the tree of life after first he put guard around it, and then he moves it into heaven. Why would he do that? Because the last thing you want to have is his creatures, aware of good and evil, lacking the power to walk in truth and in good, living for eternity. Correct? I mean, you just see, even in the Garden of Eden, you see his grace and his mercy. You say, you know, it's going to be there in the midst of the paradise of God. I need the worship team to come back up. We'll close out in a song. And if you would turn with me from Revelation there in your Bible... Go back one letter. We've been there once already. Go back to Jude. And we're going to look at this passage in prayer. I'm going to read it, and then we'll go right into prayer as the worship team works up here. So if you'd stand with me, we will close out our time in study. In Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today. Thank you that you continue to teach us about love. May our hearts be receptive. May our will be aligned with yours. May we take hold of these things that you reveal. May we humbly request your help. And may we see your powerful presence as you form us and shape us into the men and the women, the people you've called us to be. No matter the season, no matter what's behind us, may we affix our eyes upon you, Jesus, for you're glorious. Oh, to you, You alone are wise. To you be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Everyone said, amen. Hey, let's worship by way of music.